Section 13 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 39. The next morning on his arrival in town, Roger went to his office. He had little cause for uneasiness there, for twice in the summer he had come down to keep an eye on the business while John had taken brief vacations at a seaside place nearby. The boy had no color now in his cheeks. As always, they were a sallow gray, with the skin drawn tight over high cheekbones. His vigor was all in his eyes. But here was a new John, nevertheless, a successful man of affairs. He had on a spruce new suit of brown, no cheap ready-made affair, but one carefully fitted to conceal and soften his deformity. He was wearing a bright blue tie and a cornflower in his buttonhole, and his sandy hair was sleekly brushed. He showed Roger into his private room, a small place he had partitioned off, where over his desk was a motto in gold, This is no place for your troubles or mine. Lord, but you've got yourself fixed up fine in here, said Roger. John smiled broadly. And you're looking like a new man, Johnny. I had a great time at the seashore. Learned to sail a boat alone. What do you think of this chair of mine? And John complacently displayed the ingenious contrivance in front of his desk, somewhat like a bicycle seat. It was made of steel and leather pads. "'Wonderful,' said Roger. "'Where'd you ever pick it up?' "'I had it made,' was the grave reply. "'When a fellow has got up in life enough to have a stenographer, "'it's high time he was sitting down. "'Let's see you do it.' "'John sat down. "'Now, how is business?' Roger asked. "'Great. Since the little slump we had in August, "'it has taken a new start. "'And not only war business at that.' The old people are sending in orders again. I tell you what it is, Mr. Gale. This country is right on the edge of a boom. And the junior member of the firm tilted triumphantly back in his chair, with the solid comfort which comes to a man when he returns to find his affairs all going well. Roger worked until five o'clock, and then he started for his home. Deborah had not yet come in, and a deep silence reigned in the house. He looked through the rooms downstairs, and with content he noticed how little had been altered. His beloved study had not been touched. On the third floor, in the large back room, he found John comfortably installed. There were gay prints upon the walls, fresh curtains at the windows, a mandolin lying on a chair and Roger, glancing down at the keen, glad face of his partner, told himself that the doctor had said this lad would die was a fool. These doctors fool themselves often, he thought. Deborah and Alan had the front room on the floor below. Roger went in, and for a moment he stood looking about him. How restful and how radiant was this large, old-fashioned chamber, so softly lighted, waiting. Through a passageway lined with cupboards, he went into his room at the back. Deborah had repapered it, 
but with a pattern so similar that Roger did not notice the change. He only felt a vague freshness here, as though even this old chamber, too, was making a new start in life, and he felt as though he were to live here for years. Slowly he unpacked his trunk and took a bath and dressed at his leisure. Then he heard Deborah's voice at the door. "'Come in, come in,' he answered. "'Why, father, dearie,' Deborah cried, "'oh, how well you're looking, dad,' and she kissed him happily. "'Oh, but I'm glad to have you back.' "'That's good,' he said, and he squeezed her hand. "'Here, come to the light. Let me look at you.' He saw her cheeks a little flushed, the gladness in her steady eyes. "'Happy? Everything just right?' Her father nodded, smiling, and he gave a whimsical frown. "'No ups and downs at all? That's bad.' Oh, yes, plenty, but all so small. Good fellow to live with, very. And your work? It's going splendidly. I'll tell you about it this evening, after you give me the news from the farm. They chatted on for a short while, but he saw she was barely listening. Can't you guess what it means, she asked him softly, to a woman of my age, after she has been so afraid she was too old? that she'd married too late, to know at last, to be sure at last, that she's to have a baby, Dad? He drew back a little, and a lump rose in his throat. By George, he huskily exclaimed, Oh, my dear, my dear! And he held her close in his arms for some time, till both of them grew sensible. Soon after she had gone to her room, he heard Alan coming upstairs. He heard her low, sweet cry of welcome, a silence, then their voices. He heard them laughing together, and later Deborah humming a song. And still thinking of what she had told him, he felt himself so close to it all. And again the feeling came to him that surely he would live here for years. Alan came in, and they had a talk. Deborah says she has told you the news. Yes, everything's all right, I suppose, her condition, I mean, said Roger couldn't be better, just as I thought. Those six weeks we had up in Maine. Yes, you both show it. Walking hard? Yes. And Deborah? Roger asked. You'll have to help me hold her in. They talked a few moments longer and went down to the living room. John was there with Deborah. All four went in to dinner, and through the conversation from time to time Roger noticed the looks that went back and forth between husband and wife, and again he caught Deborah smiling as though oblivious of them all. After dinner she went with him into his den. Well, do you like the house? she inquired. Better than ever, he replied. I wonder if you'll mind it. There'll be people coming to dinner, you know. That won't bother me any, he said, and committee meetings now and then, but you're safe in here. It's a good thick door. Let him talk, he retorted, as hard as they please. You're married now. They can't scare me a bit. Only at ten o'clock, by George, you've got to knock off and go to bed. Oh, I'll take care of myself, she said. If you don't, Alan will. We've had a talk. Scheming already. Yes. When will it be? In April, I think. You'll quit work in your schools a month before. And in the meantime, not too hard. No, and not too easy. I'm not sure now that I can do both. 
and Deborah kissed him gently. I'm so happy, dearie, and oh, so very glad you're here. There followed for Roger after that many quiet evenings at home, untroubled days in his office. Seldom did he notice the progress of his ailment. His attention was upon his house, as this woman who mothered thousands of children worked on for her great family, putting all in order, making ready for the crisis ahead when she would become the mother of one. Now, even more than ever, her work came crowding into his home. The house was old, but the house was new. For from schools and libraries, cafes and tenements and streets, the mighty formless hunger which had once so thrilled her father poured into the house itself, and soon became a part of it. He felt the presence of the school. He heard the daily gossip of that bewildering system of which his daughter was a part. A world in itself, with its politics, its many jarring factions, its jealousies, dissensions, its varied personalities, ambitions, and conspiracies. But in spite of these confusions, its more progressive elements, downing all distrusts and fears and drawing steadily closer to life, fearlessly rousing everywhere the hunger in people to live and learn and to take from this amazing world all the riches that it holds. The school, with its great challenge, steadily increasing its demands in the name of its children, demands which went deep down into conditions in the tenements and ramified through politics to the city hall, to Albany, and even away to Washington while day by day and week by week from cities towns and villages came the vast prophetic story of the free public schools of the land and meanwhile in the tenements still groping and testing feeling her way keeping close watch on her great brood their wakening desires their widening curiosities deborah was bringing them children mothers and fathers too together through the one big hope of brighter and more ample lives for everybody's children. Step by step this hope was spread out into the surrounding swamps and jungles of blind-driven lives to find surprising treasures there deep buried under dirt and din, locked in the common heart of mankind, old songs and fables, hopes and dreams and visions of immortal light handed down from father to son, nurtured, guarded, breathed upon and clothed anew by countless generations, innumerable millions of simple men and women blindly struggling toward the sun. Over the door of one of the schools were these words carved in the stone, Humanity is still a child. Our parents are all people who have lived upon the earth our children, all who are to come. And the dawn at last is breaking. The great day has just begun. This spirit of triumphal life poured deep into Roger's house. It was as though his daughter, in these last months which she had left for undivided service, were strengthening her faith in it all, and pledging her devotion, as communing with herself she felt the crisis drawing near. CHAPTER Forty. There came an interruption. One night, when Deborah was out and Roger sat in his study alone, the maid came in highly flustered and said, Mr. Gale, it's Miss Laura to see you. 
He turned with a startled jerk of his head, and his face slowly reddened. But when he saw the maid's eager expression, and saw that she was expecting a scene, with a frown of displeasure he rose from his chair. "'Very well,' he said, and he went to his daughter. He found her in the living-room, no repentant Magdalene, but quite unabashed and at her ease. She came to her father quickly. "'Oh, Dad, I'm so glad to see you, dear,' and she gave him a swift, impetuous kiss, her rich lips for an instant pressing warmly to his cheek. "'Laura,' he said thickly, "'come into my study, will you? I'm alone this evening.' "'I'm so glad you are,' she replied. She followed him in, and he closed the door. He glanced at her confusedly. In her warmth, her elegance, an indefinable change in the tone and accent of her high magnetic voice, and in her ardent smiling eyes, she seemed to him more the foreigner now, and Roger's thoughts were in a whirl. What had happened? Had she married again? Is Edith here still? she was asking. No, she's up in the mountains. She's living there, he answered. Edith? In the mountains? demanded Laura in surprise, and she asked innumerable questions. He replied to each one of them carefully, slowly, meanwhile getting control of himself. And Deborah married, married at last. How has it worked? Is she happy, Dad? Very, he said. And is she still keeping up her schools? Yes, for the present. She'll have to stop soon. Laura leaned forward, curious. Tell me, Dad, a baby? Yes. She stared a moment. Deborah, she softly explained. And in a moment, I wonder. What do you mean? her father asked. But Laura evaded his question. She plied him with her inquiries for a few minutes longer, then turned to him with a challenging smile. Well, father, don't you think you had better ask me now about myself? He looked away a moment, then turned resolutely back. I suppose so. When did you land? This morning, dear, from Italy, with my husband, she replied. And Roger started slightly. I want you to meet him soon, she said. Very well, he answered. At his disturbed, almost guilty expression, Laura laughed a little and rose and came over and hugged him tight. Oh, but, Father dearest, it's working out so splendidly. I want you to know him and see for yourself. We've come to live in New York for a while. He has more to do here about war supplies. More shrapnel, hey? Machine guns. More wholesale death, her father growled. But Laura smiled good-naturedly. Yes, love from America. Aren't you all ashamed of yourselves, scrambling so to get rich quick out of this war you disapprove of? You look a bit rich, her father retorted. Rather, for the moment, was her cheerful answer. And you still like living in Italy? Tremendously. Rome is wonderful now. Reborn, eh? Wings of the eagles. Yes, and we're doing rather well. I haven't noticed it, Roger said. Why don't you send a few of your troops to help those plucky Frenchmen? Because, she replied, we have a feeling that this is a war where we had much better help ourselves. High ideals, he snorted. Rome reborn, she remarked, unabashed. And her father scowled at her whimsically. You're a heathen, I give you up, he declared. Laura had risen, smiling. Oh, no, don't give me up, she said, for you see, she added softly, 
I'm a heathen with a great deal of love in her heart for thee, my dearest dad. May I bring him down, my husband? Yes. I'll telephone to Deborah tomorrow and arrange it. When she had gone, he returned to his chair and sat for a long time in a daze. He was still disturbed and bewildered. What a daughter of his! And what did it mean? Could she really go on being happy like this, sinning? Yes, she was sinning. Laura had broken her marriage vows. She had run off with another fella. Those were the plain, ugly facts. And now, divorced and remarried, she was careering gaily on. And her views of the war were plain heathenish. And yet there was something about her. Yes, he thought. He loved her still. What for? For being so happy. And yet she was wrong to be happy, all wrong. His thoughts went round in circles. And his confusion and dismay grew even deeper the next night when Laura brought her new husband to dine. For in place of the dark, polished scoundrel whom Roger had expected, here was a spruce and affable youth with thick light hair and ruddy cheeks, a brisk pleasant manner of talking, and a decidedly forcible way of putting the case of his country at war. They kept the conversation to that, for despite Deborah's friendly air, she showed plainly that she wanted to keep the talk impersonal, and Laura, rather amused at this, replied by treating Deborah and Alan and her father too with a bantering forbearance for their old-fashioned, narrow views and Deborah's religion of brotherhood democracy. All that to Laura was passé. From time to time Roger glanced at her face, into her clear and luminous eyes, so warm with the joy of living with this new man, her second. How his family had split apart. He wrote Edith the news of her sister, and he received but a brief reply. Nor did Deborah speak of it often. She seemed to want to forget Laura's life as the crisis in her own drew near. CHAPTER 51 Deborah had not yet stopped work. Again and again she put it off, for in her busy office so many demands, both old and new, kept pressing in upon her. Such unexpected questions and vexing little problems kept cropping up as Deborah tried to arrange her work for the colleague who was to take her place in the spring, that day after day she lingered there, until one afternoon in March her husband went to her office, gave her an hour to finish up, and then brought her home with him. She had a fit of the blues that night. Alan was called out on a case, and a little while later Roger found his daughter alone in the living room, a book unopened in her lap, her gray eyes glistening with tears. She smiled when she caught sight of him. It's so silly, she muttered unsteadily. Just my condition, I suppose. I feel as though I had done with school for the remainder of my days. Better leave me now, dearie, she added. I'm not very proud of myself tonight, but I'll be all right in the morning. The next day she was herself again, and went quietly on with her preparations for the coming of her child. But still the ceaseless interests of those hordes of other children followed her into the house. Not only her successor, but principals and teachers 
came for counsel or assistance, and later, when reluctantly she refused to see such visitors, still the telephone kept ringing and letters poured in by every mail. For in her larger family there were weddings, births and deaths, and the endless savage struggle for life. And there were many climaxes of dreams and aspirations, of loves and bitter jealousies. And out of all this straining and this fever of humanity came messages to Deborah, last appeals for aid and advice, and gifts for the child who was to be born, tiny garments quaintly made by women and girls from Italy, from Russia, and from Poland baby blankets, wraps and toys, and curious charms and amulets. There were so many of these gifts. There's enough for forty babies, Deborah told her father. What on earth am I to do to avoid hurting anyone's feelings? And isn't it rather awful, the way these inequalities will crop up in spite of you? I know of eight tenement babies born down there in this one week. How much fuss and feathers is made over them, and they're coming into the world, poor mites. Roger smiled at his daughter. You remind me of Jekyll and Hyde, he said. Father, what a horrible thought. What have Jekyll and Hyde to do with me? Nothing, my dear, he answered. Only it's queer and a little uncanny. Something I've never seen before, this double mother life of yours. It was only a few days later when, coming home one evening, he found that Deborah's doctor had put her to bed and installed a nurse. There followed a week of keen suspense when Roger stayed home from the office. She liked to have him with her, and sitting at her bedside, he saw how changed his daughter was, how far in these few hours she had drawn into herself. He had suspected for some time that all was not well with Deborah, and Alan confirmed his suspicions. There was to be grave danger both for the mother and the child. It would come out all right, of course, he strove to reassure himself. Nothing else could happen now, with her life so splendidly settled at last. That fate could be so pitiless. No, it was unthinkable. This is what comes of your modern woman, Roger exclaimed to Alan one night. This is the price she's paying for those nerve-wracking years of work. The crisis came toward the end of the week, and while for an entire night and through the day that followed and far into the next night the doctors and nurses fought for life in the room upstairs, Roger waited, left to himself, sitting in his study or restlessly moving through the house, and still that thought was with him, the price. It was kept in his mind by the anxious demands which her big family made for news. The telephone kept ringing. Women in motors from uptown and humbler visitors, young and old, kept coming to make inquiries. More gifts were brought and flowers, and Roger saw these people, and as he answered their questions, he fairly scowled in their faces, unconsciously, for his mind was not clear. Reporters came. Barely an hour passed without bringing a man or woman from some one of the papers. He gave them only brief replies. Why couldn't they leave his house alone? He saw her name in headlines, Deborah Gale at point of death, and he turned angrily away. 
Vividly, on the second night, there came to him a picture of Deborah's birth so long ago in this same house. How safe it had been, how different, how secluded and shut in. No world had clamored then for news, and so vivid did this picture grow that when at last there came to his ears the shrill cry of a new life, it was some time before he could be sure whether this were not still his dream of that other night so long ago. But now a nurse had led him upstairs, and he stood by a cradle looking down at a small wrinkled face almost wholly concealed by a soft woolly blanket and presently alan behind him said it's a boy and he's to be named after you roger looked up how's the mother he asked almost out of danger was the reply then roger glanced at alan's face and saw how drawn and gray it was he drew a long breath and turned back to the child alan had gone and so had the nurse and he was alone by the cradle relief and peace and happiness stole into his spirit he felt the deep remoteness of this strange new little creature from all the clamoring world without which he himself was soon to leave the thought grew clearer clearer as with a curious steady smile roger stood there looking down well little brother you're here thank god and nobody knows how close we'll be for a little while he thought for we're almost out of the world you and i days passed deborah's strength increased and soon they let roger come into the room she too was remote from the world for a time that great family outside was anxious no longer it left her alone but soon it would demand her never again he told himself would she be so close so intimate as here in her bed with this child of hers to whom she had given her father's name these hours are my real good-byes two long quiet weeks of this happiness and then in a twinkling it was gone the child fell sick within a few hours its small existence hung by a thread and to roger's startled eyes a new deborah was revealed tense and silent on her bed her sensitive lips compressed with pain her birthmark showing a jagged line of fiery red upon her brow as her ears kept straining to catch every sound from the nursery adjoining through her hours of stern anguish she became the kind of mother that she had once so dreaded shutting out everything else in the world people schools all other children rich or poor well sick or dying here was the crisis of deborah's life one night as she lay listening with her hand gripping roger's tight frowning abruptly she said to him in a harsh unnatural voice they don't care any longer none of them care i'm safe and they've stopped worrying for they know they'll soon have me back at work the work she added fiercely that made my body what it is not fit to bear a baby she threw a quick and tortured look toward the door of the other room my work for those others all those years will be to blame if this one dies and if it doesn't live i'm through i won't go on i couldn't i'd be too bitter after this toward all of them those children these last two words were whispers so bitter 
they made Roger cold. But this child is going to live, he responded hoarsely. Its mother stared up with a quivering frown. The next moment her limbs contracted as from an electric shock. There had come a faint wail from the other room, and this went on for three days and nights. Again Roger lived as in a dream. He saw haggard faces from time to time of doctors, nurses, servants. He saw Alan now and then, his tall, ungainly figure stooped, his features gaunt, his strong, wide jaw set like a vice, but his eyes kind and steady still, his low voice reassuring. And Roger noticed John at times hobbling quickly down a hall and stopping on his crutches before a closed door, listening. Then these figures would recede, and it was as though he were alone in the dark. At last the nightmare ended. One afternoon, as he sat in his study, Alan came in slowly and dropped exhausted into a chair. He turned to Roger with a smile. Safe now, I think, he said quietly. Roger went to Deborah and found her asleep, her face at peace. He went to his room and fell himself into a long, dreamless slumber. In the days which followed, again he sat at her bedside, and together they watched the child in her arms. So feeble, still the small creature appeared that they both spoke in whispers. But as little by little its strength returned, Deborah too became herself, and though still jealously watchful of its every movement, she had time for other thinking. She had talks with her husband, not only about their baby, but about his work and hers. Slowly her old interest in all they had had in common returned, and to the messages from outside she gave again a kindlier ear. Alan tells me, she said one day, when she was alone with her father, that I can have no more children, and I'm glad of that. But at least I have one, she added, and he has already made me feel like a different woman than before. I feel sometimes as though I'd come a million miles along in life, and yet again it feels so close, all that I left back there in school, because I'm so much closer now to every mother and every child. At last I'm one of the family. Chapter 42 Of that great family, one member had been in the house all through the month which had just gone by. But he had been so quiet, so carefully unobtrusive, that he had been scarcely noticed. Very early each morning, day after day, John had gone outside for his breakfast, and thence to the office, where he himself had handled the business as well as he could, only coming to Roger at night now and then with some matter he could not settle alone, but always stoutly declaring that he needed no other assistance. Don't come, Mr. Gale, he had urged. You look worn out. You'll be sick yourself if you ain't careful. And anyhow, if you hang around, you'll be here whenever she wants you. Early in Deborah's illness, John had offered to give up his room for the use of one of the nurses. That's mighty thoughtful of you, Johnny, Alan had responded. But we've got plenty of room as it is. Just you stick around. We want you here. All right, Doc. If there's any little thing, you know, answering the phone at night or anything else I can do, thank you so. 
I'll let you know, but in the meantime go to bed. From that day on John had taken not only his breakfast but his supper too outside, and no one had noticed his absence. Coming in late he had hobbled silently up to his room, stopping to listen at Deborah's door. He had kept so completely out of the way, it was not till the baby was three weeks old and past its second crisis that Deborah thought to ask for John. When he came to her bed she smiled up at him with the baby in her arms. I thought we'd see him together, she said. John stood on his crutches, staring down, and as Deborah watched him, all at once her look grew intent. Johnny, she said softly, go over there, will you, and turn up the light so we can see him better. And when this was done, though she still talked smilingly of the child, again and again she glanced up at John's face, at the strange self-absorbed expression, stern and sad and wistful there. When he had gone, the tears came in her eyes, and Deborah sent for her husband. The next day at the office John came into Roger's room. Roger had been at work several days, and they had already cleared up their affairs. "'Here's something,' said John gruffly, "'that I wish you'd put away somewhere.' And he handed to his partner a small blue leather album, filled with the newspaper clippings dealing with Deborah's illness. On the front page was one with her picture, and a long record of her service to the children of New York. She wouldn't want to see it now, John continued awkwardly, but I thought maybe later on the boy would like to have it. What do you think? he inquired. Roger gave him a kindly glance. I think he will. It's a fine thing to keep. And he handed it back. But I guess you'd better put it away and give it to her later yourself. John shifted his weight on his crutches so quickly that Roger looked up in alarm. Look here, you're not well. He saw now that the face of the cripple was white, and the sweat was glistening on his brow. John gave a harsh little nervous laugh. Oh, it's nothing much, partner, he replied. That's another thing I wanted to tell you. I've had some queer pains lately, new ones. He caught his breath. Why didn't you tell me, you young fool? You had your own troubles, didn't you? John spoke with difficulty. But I'll be all right, I guess. All I need is a few days off. Roger had pressed a button, and his stenographer came in. Call a taxi, he said sharply, and John, you go right over there and lie down. I'm going to take you home at once. I've got a better scheme, said John, setting his determined jaws. The sweat was pouring down his cheeks. It may be a week, but there's just a chance it may be a little worse than that. So I've got a room in a hospital, see? Be better all around, he swayed forward. Johnny, Roger caught him just in time, and the boy lay senseless in his arms. At home, a few hours later, Alan came with another physician down from John's small bedroom. He saw his colleague to the door and then came in to Roger. I'm afraid Johnny has come to the end. For a moment Roger stared at him. Has, eh? He answered huskily. You're absolutely sure he has? There's nothing, nothing on earth we can do? Nothing more than we're doing now. He has fooled you fellows before, you know. Not this time. 
How long will it be? Days or hours? I don't know. He mustn't suffer. I'll see to that. Roger rose and walked to the floor. It was the last month did it, of course. Yes, I blame myself for that. I wouldn't, said Alan gently. You've done a good deal for Johnny Gear. He has done a good deal for this family. Can Deborah see him? I wish she could. Better stretch a point for her, hadn't you? She's been a kind of mother to John. I know, but she can't leave her bed. Then you won't tell her? I think she knows. She talked to me about him last night. That's it, a mother, Roger cried. She was watching. We were blind. He came back to his chair and dropped into it. Does John know this himself? he asked. He suspects it, I think, said Alan. Then go and tell him, will you, that he's going to get well. And after you've done it, I'll see him myself. I've got something in mind I want to think out. After Alan had left the room, Roger sat thinking about John. He thought of John's birth and his drunken mother, the accident and his struggle for life through boyhood and childhood, through ignorance and filth and pain, through din and clamor and hunger, fear, of the long fierce fight which John had made not to be put away in some big institution of his battle to keep up his head, to be somebody, make a career for himself. He thought of John's becoming one of Deborah's big family, only one of thousands, but it seemed now to Roger that John had stood out from them all as the figure best embodying that great fierce hunger for a full life, and as the link connecting the one who slowly, year by year, had emerged from his greater family and come into her small one. And last of all he thought of John as his own companion, his only one, in the immense adventure on which he was soon to embark. A few moments later he stood by John's bed. "'Pretty hard, Johnny?' he gently asked. "'Oh, not so bad as it might be, I guess. "'You'll soon feel better, they tell me, boy.' "'John shut his eyes. "'Yes,' he muttered. "'Can you stand my talking just a minute?' "'Sure I can,' John whispered. "'I'm not suffering any now. "'He's given me something to put me to sleep. "'What is it you want to talk about? "'Business? "'Not exactly, partner. "'It's about the family.' You've got so you're almost one of us. I guess you know us pretty well. I guess I do. It's meant a lot to me, Mr. Gale. But I'll tell you what you don't know, John, Roger went on slowly. I had a son in the family once, and he died when he was three months old. That was a long time ago, and I never had another, you see, to take his place, till you came along. There fell a breathless silence. And I've been thinking lately, Roger added steadily, I haven't long to live, you know, and I've been wondering whether you'd like to come into the family. Take my name. Do you understand? John said nothing. His eyes were still closed. But presently, groping over the bed, he found Roger's hand and clutched it tight. After this, from time to time, his throat contracted sharply. Tears welled from under his eyelids, then gradually, as the merciful drug which Alan had given him took its work, his clutch relaxed and he began breathing deep and hard, but still for some time longer 
Roger sat quietly by his side. The next night he was there again. Death had come to the huddled form on the bed, but there had been no relaxing. With the head thrown rigidly far back, and all the features tense and hard, it was a fighting figure still, a figure of stern protest against the world's injustice. But Roger was not thinking of this, but of the discovery he had made that in their talk of the night before John had understood him completely, for upon a piece of paper which Alan had given the lad that day these words had been painfully inscribed. This is my last will and testament. I am in my right mind. I know what I am doing, though nobody else does. Nobody is here. To my partner, Roger Gale, I leave my share in our business, and to my teacher, Deborah Baird, I leave my crutches for her school. End of section 13. Recording by James Carson.